Well, tomorrow is New Year's Eve, as you guys all know. Uh, some people look forward to ushering out a new year only to see, uh, or ushering out the old years to, to see a new one come in. You know, especially if that new year has been filled with pain and tragedy. <clears throat> Young people look forward to the new year. Sometimes they might be hitting a milestone age. Um, older people may also not be looking forward to the new year because they too might be hitting a milestone age. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some look forward to the new year because they've already got some big plans in store. Uh, maybe that's a big vacation that you've got planned with your family. Or you've got huge events, life events that are coming up. Graduating high school, graduating college, getting married, or having a child. But for many people, the new year is seen as a time to reset some priorities in their lives. And one very popular thing to do is to make what? Resolutions. Can you guess what the two most popular resolutions made every year is? Lose weight. Exercise. Exactly. See, I knew you guys would come through for me. <clears throat> I wonder, though, <clears throat> excuse me, if New Year's Day didn't immediately follow the two main eating holidays, I wonder if those would still be the two most popular ones. Uh, people have just gorged themselves with turkey and ham and stuffing and sweet potato casserole. I'm just listing the things that I like. Uh, sweets that you, can, that you can't even count. And I would know because most of you guys give us those sweets for Christmas. Uh, so we're still, we're still making our way through them. Um, so in an attempt to alleviate this, the guilt that's associated with all that food consumption, people will resolve to begin a workout routine and a diet that lasts for maybe two weeks. Um, of course, making resolutions isn't a bad thing, as long as you're serious about carrying them out. Um, Puritan preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards famously made a list of 70 resolutions. Now, these aren't New Year's resolutions, of course. These were life resolutions, a resolution to live a God-centered life that he began jotting down uh, as he's finishing his Master of Arts from Yale in, in uh, 1722. Uh, so over time, he would add to it these resolutions for his life. But listen to the very first resolution on the list. Um, it's actually kind of long, but it says, Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be the most to the glory of God and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve. This is still considered the same one. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty, and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve so to do whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever, and how great soever. Notice what his resolution is saying. He resolves to do whatever he thinks will bring God the most glory, the most good for himself and mankind, no matter how hard that task is or when he is called to do it. Do you make resolutions like that for New Year's or, or otherwise? I mean, these weren't New Year's resolutions. These were resolutions for his life. Um, do we share the same kind of resolve as Edwards? Well, the Jews of Haggai's day definitely did not share in this resolve when it came to rebuilding the temple. And it's the reason that God sent Haggai to deliver a message to the people. Uh, now, hopefully, you're already in Haggai from great direction from the crowd. 
Um, uh, but if you're not, like it was mentioned, if you start in Matthew and go back three books, you'll be in Haggai. But it's kind of short. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament behind Obadiah. So you might flip past it. Um, but before we begin reading the passage, we're going to look at a little bit of the historical context. Because when it comes to reading the prophets, it's always good to know, well, when in Israel's history are they speaking? Uh, what's going on? Uh, why, why did they have to come to the people and deliver this message? Um, Haggai preached at a time when many of the Jewish exiles to Babylon had returned to their homeland. Back in 606 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was first invaded by the Babylonians. Uh, remember, by this time, the kingdom of Israel had already split with the, uh, the tribe of Judah in the south and then the remaining tribes in the north. By this time, the northern tribes had already been carried away by the Assyrians uh, in 722 B.C., and now Judah was facing a similar fate. Um, in that first invasion uh, in 606, the first wave of exiles were carried away, and that first wave included the prophet Daniel. Um, a second invasion happened in 597 B.C., and uh, it consisted of another wave of exiles, and this time Ezekiel is is with that group of exiles and is carried along. Uh, finally, though, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell. It was burned and destroyed the temple in their wake. Um, a massive group of Jews were deported to Babylon. Now, this is considered by many people to be the darkest hour in Israel's history. One commentator put it this way, the most socially, politically, and theologically devastating event in Judah's long history of 345 years was the destruction of Solomon's temple, the place where the Lord had said he would cause his name to dwell. In a real sense, the disappearance of this center of Judah's cultus reflected the removal of the Lord himself from among his people. Just as they went into Babylonian exile, so did the Lord. The ruin of God's house marked the ruin of their very identity as the people of the Lord. And they ended up spending decades in Babylon. But all that began to change in 538 B.C. when Cyrus, who was ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire at the time, they're the rising empire, they defeat King Belshazzar and the Babylonians. You'll remember Belshazzar is the king that, uh, who famously saw the writing on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. Um, but Cyrus issued a decree once he was now in charge um, uh, he issued a decree that would allow Jews in Babylon to return to their homeland. And there may have been up to 50,000 Jews who made that 900-mile journey to Babylon to Jerusalem, but many more than that ended up staying in Babylon. One of the primary objectives of those returning exiles was that they were to rebuild the temple. Um, this was a project that even King Cyrus himself supported and funded. Uh, so... All the right tools were in place. And those returning exiles, they started that project joyfully. They were happy to, to get that project underway. Uh, and they completed the temple foundation. Uh, but before further work could be done, uh, they faced some opposition from the nearby Samaritans. They were jealous because the Persian king Cyrus was showing so many favors to these newcomers who had just returned. Um, not only that, Many of the older exiles, the ones 
who had been around when, when they were first taken away into Babylon, they remembered what the old temple looked like. They remembered its grandeur, and they lamented over the fact that this new temple was going to be relatively smaller and less opulent than that one. Um, these factors contributed to a decrease in fervor for completing the project. So the, so the temple sat unfinished for years. Um, apathy and indifference toward the project, uh, toward the temple, set in as people grew more and more concerned with their own wealth and their own possession. And it's this indifference uh, that Haggai confronts and that provides the centerpiece of his message. Sixteen years would pass between the time the exiles had stopped working on the temple and, before, uh, and between the time that Haggai comes to deliver his message. So let's take a look at verse 1. Uh, in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The very first verse gives us our setting. Uh, we know the exact day that Haggai received his message, and we know exactly to whom he was supposed to deliver it. Um, cool thing is, thanks to some ancient astronomical data, we know that the first day of the sixth month in a Hebrew calendar, which will correspond to the second year of Darius the king, roughly corresponds to about August 29th of 520 B.C. So that's pretty cool. We have a, we have a date. Uh, and we know that who he is to deliver his message is to Zerubbabel and Joshua. Well, who are those guys? Joshua is the current high priest. He's a direct descendant of Aaron. First Chronicles 6 tells us that. It, it gives us his lineage. And Zerubbabel is currently the governor. Um, he's the grandson of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the king of Babylon when they were first uh, taken into exile. So that's his granddad. So he's in that, line, that royal line. That the southern kingdom of Judah were the ones that actually maintained the royal line of David. So Zerubbabel is a Davidic covenant ruler, even if he isn't technically a king. Uh, so why is Haggai delivering his message to them? Well, they're the ones in charge of the people. In verse 2, we get to Haggai's message for Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says... The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Notice that the Lord refers to them as this people and not my people. It's clear that the Lord is rebuking them for their attitude. Um, the people have been making excuses for why they haven't been working on the temple. They say that the time isn't right. And, and time here is referring to uh, the idea of a set or appointed time. So the appropriate moment for something to be done. That's, that's, that's what they mean by time. So when in the minds of the Jews would the time be right? For 16 years the temple lay dormant. Was there no appropriate time in 16 years to continue the rebuild? It's not that the project was taking that long. It's they gave up on the project long ago, and it took that long for them to, that they, that they weren't doing any of the work. The Israelites were being some extreme procrastinators. Uh, have you ever put off getting something done? Uh, whether it's a project around the house, a big assignment for school, maybe it's scheduling that doctor's appointment that your spouse has been nudging you about. 
Um, or even getting around to those Christmas cards, which you might be a little too late uh, getting around to those. Um, if we don't like the work, it's easy for us to make excuses. Um, and some excuses can be downright comical. I'm going to read for you. These are some excuses that people have actually given uh, to get out of a day of work. So they did a survey of some HR professionals, some hiring managers, and these are excuses that people actually called in with uh, and used to get out of work. Um, uh, one employee said that he couldn't come into work because he left his clothes at the laundromat. Okay. Another employee said that her dog swallowed the car keys, so she was waiting until they came out. Uh, another employee said that their fortune teller instructed them not to leave their house for any purpose that day, including work. That was actually Lewis earlier this week. Uh, um, we told him to come in anyway. Uh, but ultimately, the reason that we put off getting things done and making excuses is misplaced priorities. Haggai points out the people's misplaced priorities in verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Haggai bluntly tells them that the reason they've ignored the temple is because they've been preoccupied with their own houses. Uh, how come they haven't found time to rebuild the house of the Lord, but they've been able to find time to build their own homes and apparently make them lavish um, the Lord describes that the inside of their houses were paneled. Um, ironically, that's a feature that was present on the old temple of Solomon. Uh, in 1 Kings 6 or 7, it describes how the temple is lined with cedar planks from floor to ceiling. So that was, that was considered a really nice feature. Um, so the people not only found time to build their own homes, but they're also hoarding their resources to make them extravagant. Um, Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., said that the people might have claimed we don't have money, but the unfinished walls of the temple and the paneled walls of their homes stood as visible testimonies to their indifference. Their top priority was themselves, not the Lord or his temple. But why is the temple such a big deal anyway? Uh, usually when a sermon is preached from this passage, a church is trying to kick off a building campaign. Um, uh, maybe they want to update their sanctuary. Maybe they want to make an addition to add some, some classroom space. Or maybe they just want to add a new building altogether. Um, but there's a big difference between church buildings now and the temple in the Old Testament. Uh, the temple was to be the place where God literally dwelled among his people. Uh, it manifested the presence of Yahweh. It was a point of national identity uh, to Israel. So that's why its destruction was so devastating to them as a nation. But since Jesus' death and resurrection, the temple's no longer needed as that dwelling place for God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us, Do you not know that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit who is in you? Inside the temple, there was the Holy of, Holy, the Holy of Holies, which is where Yahweh was to preside. But at the death of Jesus, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies was torn in too. It's often said from this pulpit that this building that we're in, this structure, is not the church, but you, the people, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are the church. You, as the children of God, are where the Holy Spirit dwells. 
So for us, this is just a building, simply a gathering place where we come and worship God together. Uh, churches are often referred to as houses of God, but no building has truly been the house of God since the temple. So we can't really equate the importance of the Israelites rebuilding the temple to that of a church building campaign. It just doesn't carry the same weight. But what would the importance of a rebuilt temple bring? Uh, one pastor gives us three different viewpoints from which to see the importance of the rebuilt temple. He says, from the people's standpoint, the rebuilt temple would be a clear and public statement that they still wanted and valued God. It would show the surrounding peoples and nations that Yahweh was the center of Jewish life. Um, from the nation's standpoint, it would be a sign uh, that the God of Israel had not gone out of business when Jerusalem fell. And from God's standpoint, the temple was a visible sign of the covenant that bound him and his people together. It represented his continuing favor to them and his continuing design to fulfill his promise. One of those promises comes from 1 Kings 6.13, that I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Another importance of the rebuilt temple is that it fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah. Um, who preached well before the Babylonian captivity. And he said that the temple would not only be destroyed, but be rebuilt. Um, the Israelites' lack of desire to complete the temple showed their lack of a desire for the Lord's presence. Uh, their priority was themselves, not Yahweh or the work that he had instructed them to do. Um, move on to verses 5 and 6 now. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Um, you have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put them into a, a purse with holes. The Lord says, consider your ways. Or give careful thought to what you're doing. Their ways needed to be corrected. And the Lord proceeded to list how that they have fared by ignoring him. Um, their losses were not an accident that could be attributed to, uh, uh, to just some unfortunate circumstances. God makes it clear that they are being disciplined. And their discipline matches the sin. They've neglected God. So their sources of life are failing. If God's the source of their life, they're ignoring it now. Their sources of life, food, uh, money, uh, all that is failing them. God's actually fulfilling covenant promises for disobedience. As, as another commentator put it, long before the destruction of the temple and the exile, the Lord threatened some of these very judgments for covenantal disobedience. The cursed section of Deuteronomy, which is chapter 28, threatens drought and famine, lack of wine, and pervasive poverty and want. Their disobedience had resulted in the exile to begin with, and now their self-centered disloyalty to the Lord is bringing further covenantal curses on them. These covenantal promises um, were intended to alert them to their sin and provoke them to action. So what does the Lord tell them to do? Look at verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. 
that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. The people are to make amends with the Lord with three simple steps. Go up, come, bring down, and rebuild. But this isn't simply a, hey, get back to work from an angry boss. This is a loving father disciplining his children. This is a call to repentance. The very first commandment um, that we find in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 4 is, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the sin of idolatry. And this time, the people's idol wasn't Baal or some other pagan god. Their idol was themselves. And the Lord is calling upon them to repent. And the Lord promises that the, peop um, that the people, that this would please him. This would bring him glory. He says later in chapter 2, verse 7, that that glory would be made manifest as he filled the temple with it. Um, obedience through repentance always brings pleasure and glory to the Lord. We're told in Luke 15, 7 that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Uh, in Joshua 7, 19, after Achan took some banned items from the spoil of the city of Ai, they, they defeated it, there was spoil, but there were things they weren't supposed to take. This is what Joshua says to him. My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Confession and repentance glorifies the Lord. If we move forward in our passage, the Lord, again, he connects their mis current misfortunes to their neglect of the temple, but this time he's even more straightforward with that than he was in verses 5 and 6. So look at, we're going to look at 9 through 11. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all, on all the labor of your hands." the Lord declares quite explicitly that he's withheld the rain for their crops and has caused the current drought. And this is in direct relation to their neglect of the temple. He says, My house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. So how do the people respond to this call to repentance? Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. There are two extremely important words in this verse. Obeyed and reverence. These two words go hand in hand. Uh, the book of Proverbs is full of instructions on right living, relating well to others and relating with God. One is considered wise when he obeys those instructions, and he's considered a fool when he does not obey those instructions. And right in the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 7, we're told that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The motivation behind being obedient to God is the fear of the Lord. 
We obey God because we revere Him, because we are in awe of His power and His might and His majesty and His sovereignty. So this idea of reverence and obedience going hand in hand, uh, we see that throughout Scripture. We see it in the book of Deuteronomy. Let me read to you just a few verses from from Deuteronomy that, that attest to this. This is chapter 5, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. So, fear me, keep all my commandments, reverence and obedience. Chapter 13, verse 11. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. So here we've got obedience in not doing something wicked, but we still have be afraid, never again do the wicked thing. So we've got reverence, we have obedience. And one more in chapter 31, verse 12. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children, and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God. And be careful to observe all the words of this law. Fear the Lord your God, observe all the words of the law. Reverence and obedience. So in Haggai, we've got the people, they obeyed after disobeying, and now they have reverence for the Lord. Obedience is the action, and reverence is the motivation of their repentance. So let's finish up the chapter here, uh, uh, verses 13 to 15. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord uh, to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Just 23 days after the word of the Lord initially came to Haggai the prophet, the people have repented. They've rearranged their priorities and rightly placed God at the top. Uh, We see that the Lord affirms his presence among the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. We also see that God is active in their repentance. He stirred up the spirits of the people. Repentance is never merely a human act. God is uh, is always working in the hearts of the people to move them toward repentance. Now, in the book of Haggai, we've got the immediate problem of rebuilding the temple. But that as a specific example doesn't really apply to us. But the larger principle of of doing the Lord's work, no matter what that may be, no matter the magnitude, the difficulty, or the timing of that work, does apply to us. And this work of the Lord can take on many facets. Perhaps perhaps you've been uh, called to lead a Bible study. Perhaps you've been called to teach Sunday school. Perhaps it's a call to serve as a deacon or as an elder uh, or to serve on one of the committees in the church. Global missions, local missions, women's ministry, men's ministry. Maybe, it's, maybe he's calling you to serve in children's ministry or youth ministry. Maybe you'll be called to missions, whether it's through a short-term trip or being a, a partner or, or in a long-term ministry somewhere around the globe. Uh, perhaps it's to, it's to start or partner in a ministry for the inner city of Chattanooga. Perhaps it's simply a call to share the gospel with your neighbor, coworker, classmate, teammate, or friend. 
Um, whatever that call may be, how we respond to that call of doing the Lord's work, how we approach whatever task he places before us is going to be evidence to the value that we place upon God in our lives. Uh, so I believe that there's four ways, according to this passage, that we can be engaged in the Lord's work. First, we refuse to offer excuses. Um, earlier, I jokingly referred to some outrageous excuses, but uh, uh, finding excuses to avoid the Lord's call is a real problem. Uh, you know, there are times when we can hear the Holy Spirit loud and clear. Um, we can see the, the Lord's opening doors for opportunities. Um, it can seem that we just get bombarded with information about this same ministry that keeps coming to our minds. Um, uh, maybe a guest speaker comes to the church to talk about it. Our friends might be talking about their experience with it. Uh, maybe when we're watching TV or listening to the radio or podcasts, uh, maybe a commercial or just what the person's talking about somehow connects and it brings our minds back to this, this calling that we, that we feel that the Lord has for us, that he's opening that up. And it seems, it seems clear that the Lord is nudging us toward this particular opportunity to do his work. But if we don't, if we don't like the work, uh, or we think it's too difficult, or it's not a convenient time for us, um, we'll come up with all kinds of excuses to get out of it. Um, Jonah didn't even bother making excuses. He simply ran in the opposite direction. Um, that's one approach, I suppose. Uh, in Haggai's day, the call to rebuild the temple was absolutely clear. Isaiah had prophesied that after the exile, the temple would be rebuilt. Um, the foreign king, Cyrus was even willing to support and fund the project. And the people knew what they were supposed to do. It was their primary objective once they returned to the land. Uh, but it didn't take long for those excuses to settle in. At first, they faced opposition. So it became too hard. Um, the next excuse was that this will never be as grand as Solomon's temple, so why even bother? Uh, by the time we get to Haggai, the excuse becomes about the timing of the project. And we don't know whether the timing had to do with finances or maybe they were waiting for the Messiah to come and they were saying, well, we, we'll do that when he gets here. Uh, we're not quite sure. Um, but for them, it just, they didn't see it as the appropriate time uh, to continue rebuilding the temple because they were preoccupied with other things. Um, but they were making excuses. Uh, I remember earlier in our marriage, we had... This is the one thing that happens at, at everyone's wedding, I'm sure, at your reception, before you can even get home, people are asking you, so when are you going to have a baby? Um, it just, it's a question that comes up over and over again until you deliver, um, literally. Uh, but everyone was asking when we were going to have a baby, and at first, you know, our excuses had to do with timing. Uh, Michelle was still in school, she had another year left, so, you know, we were like, well... Michelle's still in school. We want to wait till she graduates. After she graduated, our, our excuse shifted a little bit. Um, uh, we, wanted, we wanted to wait until we, had, we both had jobs. You know, We wanted to settle into careers. Once we had jobs, we shifted that excuse again. I don't think we can afford to have a baby right now. Eventually, I remember that we ended up having a conversation, uh, and we both ended up agreeing that if we kept waiting around for the conditions to be perfect to have a child, we'd be waiting a really long time. Um, there was always going to be an excuse not to have a baby. But of course, it wasn't long after that that we were expecting Annabelle. Um, 
Benjamin Franklin wrote, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses who was good at anything else. Uh, it's always easy for us to make excuses when we don't want to obey the Lord. Making excuses gets in the way of getting a lot of things done, especially when it comes to doing the Lord's work. But when it's clear that the Lord is calling us to something, we need to stop making excuses and admit our responsibility. Uh, the second way we can be engaged in the Lord's work is to set our priorities. When the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me, he's saying that I deserve top priority. I come first. And it seems like such an obvious commandment. Most of us would agree with that and even proclaim, yeah, the Lord is Lord's first in my life, sure. But does your life reflect that? If we were to observe a week in the life of your family, would we come away thinking, man, those people really love the Lord? Uh, when it came to the Israelites in Haggai, I'm sure they also proclaimed their love for Yahweh and that he was the most important aspect of Jewish society and culture. But Haggai pointed out that the way they were living suggested otherwise. Their comfort, their pleasure, and their luxury was more important to them. And it was evident when you compared their house to the house of the Lord. Um, we can make an idol out of a lot of things. Uh, most of the time, those things aren't inherently bad either. Um, but how we spend our time and our money are always big indicators of what comes first in our hearts. It's why Jesus said in Matthew six twenty one, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Uh, and the same can be said of our time. Um, our schedules tend to be filled with good things. Um, you know, having a job is a good thing. Our kids' education is a good thing. Being on a sports team is a good thing. But how often are we allowing those things to have precedent over what the Lord may want us to do for him and for his kingdom and for the church? Work can become an idol. School can become an idol. The soccer team can become an idol. Our friends can become an idol. Even, even spending lots of time at home with our families can become an idol. Um, if all of that is taking away what we could be doing for the Lord. Um, let us make the Lord and His work our top priority and let our lives reflect that truth. The third way that we can be engaged in the Lord's work is simply to get involved. Um, get involved in what the Lord is doing. If you've been invited to be on a committee, join it. Um, if you've been considering leading a Bible study at work, go for it. Um, if you felt like the Lord is leading you to youth ministry, come talk to me and I'll get you plugged in. Um, there's so many areas of ministry just within our church that you can be involved in. Um, um, from nursery to trailblazers, but the Lord is doing amazing things outside of the walls of this church as well. Uh, Chattanooga is chocked full of ministry opportunities. Many of them are supported uh, by this church through our local missions, and they're always searching for volunteers. From an eternal from an eternal perspective, you'll never regret doing what the Lord has called you to do. And as affirmed by our passage from Haggai, the Lord is glorified and pleased when we do get involved in his work. We do have to be careful, though. Uh, there is a danger at the opposite end of this spectrum. Some of us are involved in too much of the Lord's work, and we're risking ministry burnout. Uh, moms and dads, our roles as spiritual leaders in our homes can suffer if we're never there to lead our families. Perhaps 2019 becomes a time to step away from a ministry involvement 
so that you're free to lead and serve your family. That too is the Lord's work. Uh, the fourth and final way that we can be engaged in the Lord's work is to receive his enablement. If we go back for a moment to excuses, uh, one of the biggest excuses we have for not doing the Lord's work is we don't feel uh, like we're qualified. We don't feel like we're equipped or we're, that we're talented enough to be successful in whatever the Lord calls us to. Um, when it comes to the Pray For Me campaign, that is the number one reason I get as to why someone won't join. I tried last year, but I didn't do a very good job. I didn't pray as often as I should. I'm just not that good at praying for others, so I'm not going to do it this year. You know, if we were on our own, um, we would be justified in our excuse. Um, we are woefully inadequate to do ministry on our own. But notice what God said to the people in verse 13. I am with you. We are never alone in ministry. And God will equip you to do the work. It is God who stirred the hearts of the people to continue rebuilding the temple. It is he who enables you to pray for a student. It is he who enables you to witness to your neighbor. It is he who enables you to read and understand his word and to be able to teach it to others. He will enable and equip you to do whatever he has called you to do. Um, listen to this benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We can take great comfort in knowing that God's going to give us the strength and ability to do whatever is his will. If the Lord has called you, he will equip you to do the work. And it takes faith and trust in the Lord to jump into a ministry that's going to get us out of our comfort zone. So the sin of the people of Haggai's day was making an idol out of themselves. They're placing themselves as top priority, maintaining an emphasis on their own wealth, their own homes, their own possessions, over that of their Lord and the work that he had called them to do. And their indifference toward the temple rebuild showed a lack of concern for the Lord and a lack of value for his dwelling place among his people. Their actions indicated where their priorities lied. In this new year, will your actions display that God has first place in your life? In 2019, will you resolve to do the work of the Lord, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter the scope, or no matter when he calls upon you to do it? Let's pray. Lord, the temptation to place ourselves, our well-being above you in our lives, is one that we fight every single day. Uh, we can become so selfish that we're blinded to the things you've called us to do. Father, I pray that you step in and turn our thoughts away from idolatrous thinking. Help us to see the things that we've placed as gods or as idols in our lives. Call us to repentance and move us toward doing the work to further your kingdom here on this earth. And we know that you'll equip us in whatever endeavor that is your will. Lord, help us to prioritize our lives in a way that gives you the glory and gives you the praise. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.